0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Hey everybody, Pastor Vince here. Uh, As you've noticed, we're only on live stream today, and uh, so that means uh, I'm just going to be preaching uh, I offered to do some acapella worship, but the worship team voted uh, ten to zero that I don't do that. Uh, not sure why. We're gonna meet about it later. But uh, I'm just gonna be teaching the Bible today. But I'm excited to do that, and uh, I hope you are too. Um, so, if you would, please turn with me to the book of Mark, uh, chapter ten. We're gonna look at verses one through sixteen. <clears throat> Mark 10, and we're going to start in verse 1, go to verse 16. Uh, So as you probably figured out as you're turning, uh, we're going to continue in our series through Mark. It's called Servant King. Uh, It's going to be really important today. I say this a lot. It's going to be really important today uh, that we get some background and context in order to rightly understand all that is happening in these few verses. Uh, Because today the question of divorce is coming up. Uh, and as we will see, uh, Jesus reroutes the conversation to God's purpose and design for marriage as his answer, uh, sidestepping the misplaced focus of the debate in that time. Uh, this was a hot topic in those days, and the Pharisees, in, in coming up and challenging Jesus in this way, they were hoping to get him out of favor with one of the two dueling Jewish factions of the day or with Herod uh, who had already, if you remember, beheaded John the Baptist at the request of Herodias because John the Baptist was calling them out about their adulterous relationship. Uh, So what we're going to do is we're going to read Mark chapter 10 verses 1 through 16 together. But before we do, uh, I'd, I'd like to encourage you to have your Bible open with me or uh, if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible with you, pull it up on the app. Um, and if you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, please let us know. We'll get you one. Uh, but what I'm hoping and encouraging you to have a Bible open in front of you in some way is that you aren't just casually watching this live stream, but instead actively participating as we study the Scriptures together. Uh, in addition, later in the sermon, you may want to turn to the Scriptures I'm referencing as well. We've got to read... Uh, some significant blocks outside of our uh, anchor text here today. And and we've got some serious work to do as we study through God's Word today. So I'm hoping that you will get a Bible out, open an app, and uh, follow along. Okay? As I said, we're in Mark 10, and we're going to read verses 1 through 16 together. Okay? Here we go. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Praise God for his word. Amen. Okay. We're going to start from the beginning and and work through this. Um, And and, and before I really start breaking into the the scriptures and and breaking them down, let's do some of the the cultural backdrop work I was talking about. Because understanding what was going on uh, as the backdrop to this is going to help us understand why verse 2 says that the Pharisees were testing Jesus, okay? So here's what we have. There were two main schools of thought at this time on the subject of divorce uh, within the Jewish community. And, And the debate, it revolved around how they interpreted one word in a text in Deuteronomy 24. The word in the New American Standard Bible is indecency. Some of your translations may say uncleanness, okay? But this is this was kind of the crux of the debate at that time. So I'm going to read you Deuteronomy, the, the, the scriptures in question, the, the reference here they're making to the, the law of Moses. Uh, I'm going to read you verses 1 through 4 in Deuteronomy 24, okay? So if you want to Kind of, hopefully you have maybe a bookmark in your Bible or hold your finger there. If you want to turn to Deuteronomy 24, that's the fifth book of the Pentateuch. Okay, so that's towards the beginning of your Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read those to you now. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, that's the word, remember? The debate swirls around. Found some indecency in her that he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her away from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And the latter husband turns against her, writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her away from his house. Or if the latter husband who took her to be his wife dies, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife after she has been Defiled, For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Okay? So I told you that the, the two dueling factions, it surrounds this word indecency. And what does that really mean? Well, one school of thought was led by Rabbi Shemai, And he was his position was more conservative but less popular among the people. I think you'll probably see why. He understood that word indecency or uncleanness that that meant in particular sexual immorality and some would even say basically the bottom line is if, if the husband found out the woman was not a virgin at the time they got married then that was what this was covering, okay? Um, and he said that was the only valid reason for divorce, okay? So that was one school of thought. But there was another, Rabbi Hillel, uh, he was, had a more liberal view and it was more popular with the people. He understood this word uncleanness or indecency to mean basically any violation and, and almost to the point of even an annoyance that the wife may cause the husband. Um, he, even specifically to the point of if she burnt the food that she was cooking. That would be a valid reason. Um, he, he took it so far as to almost say it was, it was a legal obligation if the husband f- w- was displeased with her to, to go ahead and, and divorce her. Uh, <clears throat> which is wild, but that's that's the landscape that this you know, this situation with the Pharisees and Jesus, that, that's that was the, the, the cultural conversation around the subject. Okay, so what the Pharisees are doing here is they're hoping to get Jesus to either speak against Moses or to infuriate much of the population, or maybe even tick off any Roman authorities who may have been paying attention to his teaching as he spoke about this subject, right? Because it's touchy and it's emotional and uh, it's difficult, right? So this is, they thought, a good place to trap Jesus. And it's, it's interesting that the, the real heart of the question here that, that the Pharisees are getting at, it's, it's really exposed a little more clearly in Matthew's account of this same interaction because in Matthew nineteen three we see this. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking... Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? For any reason at all. Okay? So they're, they're trying to pin Jesus down here. Uh, they're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him in trouble with somebody. Uh, they're trying to get rid of him. But instead of stepping into the trap, uh, as Jesus was the master at doing... Uh, he just goes ahead and puts them on blast, okay? And so we're going to see that as we read verses 3 through 5. Here's how Jesus turns the tables. Let's read that together again, verses 3 through 5. And he answered, and sa- so they asked their question. Jesus answers, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let no man separate. So I'm here to zero in on three through five in this kind of table turning that that Jesus does. Uh, And and what we notice here in verses three through five, in Jesus responding and saying, it it was hardness of heart that, brought that whole section of Deuteronomy 24 into the law. that God had Moses write that because of your hardness of heart. That was, that was the problem. That was the crux of what was trying to be dealt with with those regulations, right? And, and what that shows us is that the, the debate among the rabbis about this, it, it missed the whole point of these verses in Deuteronomy 24, Okay. Because here's what we see. In the intensely patriarchal society of Old Testament Israel, without these laws, without what I read you from Deuteronomy 24, okay, wives would have been much more vulnerable to the manipulation or the foolish whims of their husbands. Okay, The, the point, the reason why it talks about giving her a certificate, it, it's clear as we read it, was to prove that her husband had indeed divorced her so that she could remarry. And so really what we see, the warning to husbands in Deuteronomy 24 is is basically like this. Like, listen up, bud. Uh, If you let her go and she finds someone else, (laughs) even if that guy dies, you don't get her back. That's really the warning, right? And Proverbs 18.22 says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord, right? That is God's heart on the matter. And in case you're feeling like maybe I'm stretching or that's a little sketchy, the fact that the heart of these commands was much more about protecting the wives than it was giving husbands permission to be dinguses, right? Right? is evidenced in verse 5. So I read you Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Now let me read you verse 5, the very next verse in that section of Deuteronomy 24 that has the, the, the language about divorce and that this whole debate in Jesus' time was centered around, okay? Here's, here's verse 5, Deuteronomy 24. You can turn back there. If you flip there, flip back there with me and look at it, okay? Don't lose your place in Mark 10, though. We're not done. Okay, here's verse 5. When a man takes a new wife, this comes right after everything else about the certificate of divorce. Remember, think of the context. When a man takes a new wife, he is not to go out with the army, nor be assigned any duty. He shall be free at home for one year, and shall make his wife, whom he has taken, happy. Okay? So what, what's the line of thought? What's the... What's the heart of God being revealed in these verses? <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's what we need to see in this. This, And I'm real serious about it. Any chauvinist who has ever thought he was justified in treating his wife as anything but a precious gift from God needs to read his Bible again. And preachers who have taught that nonsense are going to answer to King Jesus for it. 100%. Amen. I hope there's some people amening at home right now. If you didn't, go ahead and do it. That was a good spot. Hallelujah. But, so, so we, we, we go with Jesus on his sidestep around the trap, and we see the real heart of what Deuteronomy 24 is even getting at, right? But it, can we be honest about ourselves? Isn't it just like humans to turn those verses in Deuteronomy 24 into a debate over what grounds there are for divorce. And not only to do that, miss the point, turn it into a debate about the one word, indecency or uncleanness, miss the heart of the thing, right? (laughs) Not only do we that, but then separate into legalistic and relativistic factions over it and bicker about it. Lord help us. (laughs) That's what we do. We're still doing that today about a lot of things, okay? We're not immune from that foolishness. Amen. Now, before we move on, I want to make sure we flip the coin over here. Okay? These commands were at least in large part to protect the wives from the emotional or immature whims of their husbands. To be sure. But let us not think that verse 5, talking about husbands making their wives happy means that they are then subject to live enslaved to any emotional or immature whims of their wives. okay? Because this can work in reverse as well. How do we deal with that? Well, Ephesians 5 teaches us much better than that. We, we shouldn't come to that conclusion. What Ephesians 5 shows us is that godly husbands love and lead their wives like Christ loves and leads the church. And so this includes laying down his life to serve her and part of what that, part of what that looks like is cultivating a culture within the marriage of love-motivated accountability to one another and also to Jesus and his word. It's part of what it means to be a godly husband. Amen. Praise the Lord. That helps us. That helps us not get into those traps or miss the heart of a thing, right? Which so many had done here. Okay, so let's look at uh, verses 6 through 9. Jesus isn't done dropping his bomb here, okay? This is so good. I know I just read these again a second ago, but it's, we should have these memorized so it won't hurt you. Okay, so it was because of your hardness of heart. The whole thing you're debating about, the problem was really hard hearts, and that's what God was dealing with in those commands. Verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, Where's, where's Jesus go to talk about this? He's going to go to the meaning, the purpose of God even creating marriage. This is, this, is, this is where the mind of the master goes. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That's strong language in response to this question, isn't it? And as I read this, <laughs> it looks to me like Jesus now gives these fellows who, who were trying to trap him much more than they bargained for, right? I could, I could see at this point them looking behind them to see if they can, you know, you ever seen that meme where Homer Simpson disappears into the bush? That's, I bet those guys felt like that right here. They're looking for a way out because this just got real, Okay. In order to show them how far off their thinking had gotten on the subject of divorce, Jesus took them back to God's purpose and intent for marriage. Okay, They didn't think the conversation was going to go here, to be sure. You see, here's what we need to know. Here's, we got to grapple with this reality. As humans, we can't help but be dragged into sin by the, the almost gravitational pull Of selfishness and self focus. My needs, my dreams, my wants and desires. The Pharisees thought they were setting Jesus up with these questions about divorce. And then, with his response, he essentially sets them up with a question of his own. What is that question? What made you think marriage was about you anyways? <laughs> Ooh, come on. How many of y'all squirming a little bit? It's okay. It's good for us. Here's, here's, what, here's what Jesus, I'm, I'm kind of summarizing really where he takes them, what, the position he puts them in. Here's what he's saying. This is God's deal, people. Marriage is his idea and is meant to fulfill his purposes. And it isn't primarily about personal benefit for you in in some transactional sense, and it's, it's not even about your dream of romantic fulfillment. According to Genesis, it's meant to be a safe foundation for establishing and propagating families, and according to Ephesians 5, it is about reflecting the covenant love of God and Christ's gospel to the world. That Is God's intention in marriage? And how often do we miss the point? Whether we're thinking about the implications, the scriptural teachings on divorce or marriage, this when when the opportunity came up for Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, to comment on the matter, that's where he went. (laughs) Back to the purpose, back to who designed this thing. And what are his purposes? what was in his mind as he created this institution. And we have to, it's probably, it's probably worth just saying here, there, there's, there, there needs to be a distinction between what uh, probably the average person thinks of when they hear marriage and what we're talking about. We are talking specifically today about Christian marriage, marriage between people who are followers of Jesus and thus have a reason for seeing this as something more than just maybe what society sees it at, I understand the state is involved in marriage now. It, it, I mean, I, I think part of our problem with many of the debates surrounding this is language. I think it 'd be helpful if we made a distinction between civil unions, basically what everyone who 's not following Jesus but does uh, come together underneath the state 's terms what they do that. A civil union, and I don't know that the church has a whole lot to say about that, but there's that, and then there's Christian marriage, and and the word marriage has kind of been co-opted and tossed over the whole thing, and that's why I'm saying maybe it's helpful for us to just add, I know we don't, we like to say as few words as possible to describe what we're saying, we're kind of um, verbally lazy in that way, but I think for us to distinguish, we got to have some kind of distinction between what everyone else does, kind of a civil union, and Christian marriage, because Christian marriage is based upon a a whole different starting point than what the majority of everyone else is doing, okay? Christian marriage is based on what Jesus brought us to here, a belief that God made us, male and female, that he made us with this this ability to reflect his image to one another and to live in love-motivated, sacrificial service to one another, and that we understand that that, reflecting what he's done for us, is, is the primary thrust of what it means to be married. That's, that's a different program <laughs> than, than what many uh, conceptualize as they think of marriage or a, a union. Okay, So, look, I, I hope that was helpful, and, and so that you understand, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about what Jesus' followers should be thinking and doing and how we should be living in light of Christ's teachings here, okay? Uh, I know not everyone's going to be coming from that starting point, and we just should acknowledge that, okay? All right, let's look at verses 10 through 12. That's going to get us into the nitty-gritty a little bit, uh, and we need to, okay? So uh, so Jesus, this is, that's the end of his public statement on the matter. Uh, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Mic drop. Now, scene change, okay? In the house, right? So now they've pulled back away. In the house, the disciples begin questioning him about this again. It's hilarious to me in Matthew when they talk about this account. The, the, it's said there, too, the disciples have this follow-up. And they're like, hold on, hold on, Jesus. We heard you say this. Is that, is that what you meant? And basically, as Jesus confirms it, uh, the disciples' response is, well, because <laughs> this is intense, man, Right? Um, hey, Jesus, what about divorce? Uh, here, here's what I'm going to tell you. <clears throat> God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. The two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Dun, see ya. What? <laughs> Whoa, okay. Disciples, disciples after, they, after they hear what Jesus says here, their, their response was something to the effect of, well, who then should be married? Right? They're freaked out. Like, are you serious? I mean, that's part of, I think, why Paul talks about marriage the way he does in First Corinthians and, and elsewhere. Like, look, man, uh, this is not easy. This is not light. This should not be entered into uh, with any kind of frivolity. Very serious, because it's covenant. Covenant is what makes the difference, man. Covenant is the same word for our relationship between us and God through Christ is applied to what a husband and wife do in coming together before God and making vows and promises. Covenant. It's a big deal. It's a big, big deal. Okay. So, now we're getting into Jesus expands a little bit on on what he's talking about for the disciples. It didn't make him feel any better, I'm sure. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Okay, so here's one of the times where we have to really uh, lean into the principle of understanding that we need the whole counsel of God's word on a given subject. Because you could read what Jesus said there and think, oh, okay, well, that's, that's it. That's all he said there, and so that's all there is to be said on the subject. And that is, not the, that is not the case, okay? Jesus addressed specifically what he was being questioned about here. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list or an exhaustive conversation around uh, God's requirements, God's heart, uh, when it comes to marriage and, uh, in particular, divorce. How do we know that? How do we know that, that, that this here isn't all Jesus had to say about it? Because if that was it, then basically, uh, and there are those who hold this position, uh, that their divorce is never permitted under any circumstance, okay? Uh, that position, I, I, you know there, there, are, there are even Bible teachers that I would say I, I respect that, that hold that position, but I think it goes too far. It doesn't take into account all the the whole counsel of God's word, has to say on the matter. How do we know that Jesus didn't say, okay, we're talking about this right now. Let me give you everything you need to consider on the matter right now. Okay? He didn't do that here, or if he said more about it, Mark didn't necessarily record it in this setting. Um, but we know this is not an exhaustive treatment because right off, right off the bat, Jesus doesn't mention anything about death here. Okay, And we know that death is one way that a marriage covenant in God's eyes, uh, comes to an end, okay? Romans 7, 2 says this, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. All right. Um, ladies whose husbands have annoyed them lately, uh, it says that you're released if he dies, not if he's murdered, okay? So let's just keep that in mind. Amen. <laughs> uh the second, so death is the end of a marriage covenant uh, commitment, okay? And, and there's, there's a couple other cases that the whole counsel of God's word gives us. Uh, the second is adultery, okay? And, and we actually see that come out in Matthew's telling of this event, okay? So in Matthew 19, 9, it says this, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery okay so except for sexual immorality and so we see uh that even that that ties to deuteronomy 24 and that indecency or uncleanness and so the the heart of god has consistently been that if someone violates a marriage covenant uh and and here's the thing this is li- it's live stream so i'm assuming families are all sitting together so i have to I had to rework this a little bit to be uh, a little, a little easier on little ears. So, the point is, when it comes to, um, well, how shall I say, in Genesis it said Adam knew Eve. Parents, adults, you know what I'm talking about. You got me. Okay, that's a major factor here. Okay, uh, physical relations. Okay, that's that matters, and what that points us to is you know a whole other subject of something we need to rethink the way we see it uh because for many it's become merely a casual physical act or or you know whatever but it's 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 deeply spiritual and it has it it, it creates connections and it's it's really only meant uh, it's only safe within the benevolent boundary of covenant marriage and when that's violated uh you know in any case that the Bible is talking about permitting divorce here, we need to make sure we're, we're using that word, permitting. Never is it commanded. There's, there's no situation where the grace of God can't lead to reconciliation. And I would tend to stand on the side of saying, in any case, reconciliation through uh, the grace of, of God's gospel and mercy being applied and mutual forgiveness and healing, that that is always best case scenario. However, there are clearly cases where that is unable to happen. Okay? And it's sad. It's heartbreaking in every case. Um, Because we see that the summary of God's heart on the matter, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The language all the way back in Genesis that joined together, it's, it's, it's like gluing something together, bonding it in such a way that it's not meant to be taken apart. Okay? But there are... Uh, certain cases where uh, God understands that, that, that glue can be dissolved, certain sins, and, and adultery is one of them, okay? Uh, I have seen many, many cases, thankfully, where adultery was a factor, and God's grace and the goodness of his gospel um, was able to wrap people up in, in mercy and forgiveness, and there was able to be um, Reconciliation. Um, but I've also seen times where there's, there's no genuine repentance and there's um, no humility. And in cases like that, sometimes it can't be helped, okay? So death, so what, what am I doing? I, I'm, since we touched the, the, the conversation of divorce here, what I don't feel like I can do responsibly is just read through what Jesus said here without taking a minute to walk you through what the whole counsel of God's word says about it, okay? Because I don't, Uh, I don't want people leaving here condemned. Uh, That's not the point ever, okay, of studying God's Word together. Uh, There may be reason for conviction all through this. I think, you know, anybody with a pulse probably could have been convicted by what has been said thus far. But um, we need to make sure we're accurate in how we draw out the heart of God as it pertains to these things. Because these are, as I've said, deeply difficult uh, and deeply emotional and uh, life-altering subjects, okay? So the third thing I'm going to give you is something we see in 1 Corinthians 7.10. I'm going to put it under the the umbrella of abandonment, okay? So here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7.10. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband is not to divorce his wife. Okay? Uh, That was... 10 11 this is verse 12 first corinthians 7 but to the rest i say not the lord that if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she consents to live with him he must not divorce her and if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her she must not divorce her husband for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband for otherwise your children are unclean but now they are holy those last couple of verses, I don't, I don't have time to unpack all that. If you've got more questions about it, you know, email me or get with me, okay? Um, verse 15, here's, here's really what we're here for. Yet, so what did he say? If you have an unbelieving spouse consenting to live with you, you shouldn't leave. But, verse 15, if, an unbelieving, if the unbelieving one is leaving, let him leave. The brother or sister is not, the brother or sister, so if the unbelieving one is saying, I'm out of here. The brother or sister, the believer is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us in peace. But God has called us in peace. And so what is this saying? Well, this is, I think Paul is providing some pastoral care here uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and acknowledging this reality. It's a reality that I've learned uh, a really long and hard way that you can't make anybody do anything. You can't chain people uh, and make them do what's right. And there are times when, especially if, if somebody is an is an unbeliever, you're not even they're not even work. And this is you know part of why the Bible talks about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is why if you're somebody who is not yet married but desires to be, you need to think about this. Uh, first of all, if you're a follower of Jesus, and we think Christian marriage is based upon God's covenant between Christ and us through His gospel, uh, if you are thinking about marrying an unbeliever, how, dear friend, do you think they're even going to have a frame of reference for understanding what covenant actually is if they have not yet experienced covenant love between them and Christ? Okay? So you're setting yourself up for real trouble there. But if, if you're already in that situation or you've been in that situation, uh, first of all, let me say, um, the, the, <laughs> I'm not beaten on the pulpit and I'm not angry. Uh, I'm heartbroken even thinking about the reality of this because I've seen it happen. When somebody uh maybe thought they were a believer when they when they got married found out they weren't or somebody two people got together one claimed to follow Jesus one never did but there there comes a point where the person who their conscience is not even bound by the scriptures or by the holy spirit they're they're running a totally different program if that person decides i'm out of here <sighs> paul says you got you got to let him go what what are you going to do right and he says Specifically, that the brother or sister then is not under bondage in such cases. They are not. They are not uh, for something that they they couldn't control, couldn't change, couldn't do anything about. They're not going to be held accountable for that. Okay. One one thing I do want to mention, uh, I hesitated on it, um, but I I just want to say it because it's out there. Okay, and th- I think it it needs further study and and consideration by more than just us here, but. Um, there are those who would include um, abuse, and that's a difficult term to uh, define. Uh, most notably, I would say recently, Wayne Grudem, who wrote a systematic theology book, uh, is known for some other things. He 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 changed his position. Uh, would not he? Basically, at one time would have been traditionally for a long time the church's understanding of what where divorce is permitted is death, adultery, and abandonment. Okay. Those three reasons. Uh, there, there are those who see in verse 15 where it says, if the unbelieving one is leaving, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Those three words, they're looking at the Greek and they're saying, in such cases is not specifically describing what Paul just said, abandonment, but opens up broader for other considerations of um, you know, long-term patterned uh, abuse and and somebody being in danger. And, and l- let me just say this: even I think responsibly, churches and, and leaders that even if somebody stands in the place of there's there's three ways out of marriage: death, adultery, and abandonment. That doesn't mean. And this is p- part of why this is such a hard conversation is because there's been. <laughs> I mean. How, there's, there's been so many maybe, maybe Christian Bible teachers, maybe they weren't Christians and they were just uh, assuming they, they were actually teaching the Bible. I mean, we've had so many all the way over on the spectrum of like, the Bible teaches chauvinistic rule by men over their wives or over women in, in general, that, uh, I mean, that's, that's the frame of reference for some people and, and that 's not to say abuse can 't flow both ways because it can uh, i 've for, sure, for sure seen that so uh, but the the, the point i 'm getting at here is that so that's some people 's experience with somebody teaching them what the Bible has to say on the matter is has been terrible there's been many cases where uh, Christian leaders have have sent people being abused back into the situation with some kind of platitude about forgiveness without taking the time to get into the mess of the thing and actually figure out what's going on. Because there are many cases where, at the very least, separation is, is absolutely the right call, okay, uh, for the safety of those being abused. And then once safety is established, then there can be lots of investigation and prayerful work about what it's going to take for there to be reconciliation. Is there repentance? Is there, is there an open door here for this to be safe again? Okay? um i, I so I, I want you to know again that jesus didn 't give us an exhaustive list here in mark ten but but I, in in wherever you 're at in thinking through this whether you're you 're walking with someone else who 's having to think through this or you 're thinking through this yourself i I, I do think it 's real important that as a starting point, we go where Jesus went because you it 's a real long rabbit hole of lots of possibilities thinking through this whole deal with, you know, what, are, what does the Bible actually, where does it permit divorce and in what instances and what does that look like? But I, I think when Jesus was questioned on it, let us not forget what he did. He, he, he basically sidestepped that and went to God's purpose and intent for marriage. And that's an important place for us to start as we think our way through This at a broad theological doctrinal level, but also when it gets down into the the nitty-gritty details of individual situations that either we are walking through or we're walking with others through, okay? Let's remember Jesus, when asked about divorce, ended his public statement on it with, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. We should start from there, okay? And gospel love should absolutely be uh, the guiding principle for how we sort through these things. And I also want to say this, the the pastoral care under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit we see Paul providing in 1 Corinthians 7 is is a principle I would apply broadly to these things. Pastoral care and biblically trained counselors are often needed to sort these things out. And so in difficult situations like this, that's part of why God has established biblical leadership in the church and why he's gifted people with the ability to sit down and help people sift through and sort out because when you get into these very tense and painful situations, uh, vision can get cloudy, man, and you know perspectives can be skewed, and it's, it's hard. It's really hard, and it, it can be hard to be the, the counselor or the pastor trying to walk with, with people through it, but... Uh, there's a lot of cases where that's absolutely what needs to happen, that sorting it all out is, isn't going to be possible without some the the eyes and, and ears of, of somebody else that has a Bible in their hand and loves the people involved and is able to speak into the thing, okay? Because it it gets exceptionally complicated trying to take what the Bible says about it and then Work that through very hard situations around this, okay? So also be careful if you're somebody that loves somebody or is walking with somebody going through these types of things. Um, for sure, be with them. For sure, be willing to wade in uh, and get neck deep in other people's pain and, and be there to, to, you know, empathize and be there along with them. And for sure, uh, we believe in the priesthood of believers, so offer biblical insight and. and uh, help but with the Holy Spirit helping you, of course, but also be careful that you don't um, go too far in that, that you don't just give quick answers to situations that may need more investigation or thought, okay? Um, God help us all in those things, because it's it, it can be a lot, okay? One other thing I want to point out is uh, in verse 12 here, Okay, it says, and if, so, well, let me back up. Verse 11, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. I think it's very interesting that in verse 12, Jesus specifically addresses the potential sin of a woman and, and is holding her personally responsible for it instead of just talking past women like they were, just under the rule of their husbands or not even there, right? Um, Like many would have in that day. Jesus didn't just say, hey, husbands, if you do this, he also speaks to the wives, which it may be hard for us to see why that matters or why that uh, contributes to the proof that the Bible is not um, the chauvinistic hammer used to beat on women that many accuse it of being, but Jesus treats them just the same, as if they have... uh, free will and moral accountability and can make choices about whether they're going to follow what the Lord says or not. Amen. Okay? So, that along with what we saw in Deuteronomy 24 today should help us. Maybe the next time uh, someone tries to tell us that uh, God's word is is basically an implement to hold women down. It's absolutely not. Okay? All right. Let's let's look at verses 13 through 16 today. It it seems like maybe a... a, um, a hard pivot away from what we're talking about, but I think, I think there's a thread that connects. Okay. Um, verse 13, and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, indignant, that's, we want to make sure we get the force of that word. I'm not, we don't use indignant a whole lot anymore. I'm indignant at you. I don't think most of you would say that, but, um, Maybe you'd be better than some of the things you do say. Amen. All right. Uh, but indignant is strong. The, the language here is Jesus oh, was not happy. Okay? Not happy with what just happened here. That's, that's what it wants to get across to you, this, this word. And here's his answer. Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such of thee as these. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Okay, what do we see? As as much as this entire section here that we've read, these 16 verses, as much as it is about divorce and marriage... Because we went in and understood the true heart of what was happening in t- verse 24, and because we saw how Jesus dealt with the factions and, and ideas that it, and what it, that thing had become, everyone missing the point, we also these verses are also another example of how we tend to miss the gospel with our tendency for overcomplication. Okay? Marriage... And what am I saying? And how do I get to the gospel? Well, I've already kind of alluded to it, but hear this. Marriage is meant to reflect Christ's covenantal love for his people to the world. This is one of, I gave you two major purposes from God's perspective for marriage, okay? In Genesis, it, it seems primarily focused upon us being a safe foundation for the propagation of families. Amen? Ephesians 5 expands on that with the gospel in view. Let me read this to you. This is 528 of Ephesians. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are parts of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. Remember that? That's Genesis. Jesus said it, Mark 10. Now Paul's bringing it up again in Ephesians 5. A man shall leave his father and mother, And be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's that language again. This is a big deal. Uh, It's a really big deal, but it's also hard to understand. Paul acknowledges this. Verse 32. This mystery is great. Yes, it is. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. All through, as Paul reaches for an analogy to help us understand the depth and beauty of what covenantal marriage is supposed to be, where does he go? The analogy he reaches for, and it's more than just an analogy, he points us to Christ in the church. Covenant love between Jesus and his people. And the mystery of the depth of how two become one, that's a mystery. But part of how we can get some of God's heart on the matter and and begin to understand it is to look at Christ in the church. And the so the, that that second big primary push and purpose of marriage from God's perspective is that part of what marriage is supposed to do is, is right there at the at the local level between husband and wife, they're supposed to be a reflection back and forth to each other of gospel covenantal love. The gospel should be reflected back and forth to one another as, as, as they seek to serve one another, as they seek to outdo one another in showing honor, right? As they seek to love each other the way Christ has shown us love is meant to be given, right? So there's that at that level, but then also it's meant to reflect out beyond that. Christian marriage is supposed to be one of the greatest testimonies to the covenantal love of God for his church in the world. People are supposed to be able to look into our marriages as Jesus followers and get a picture, an imperfect picture, an imperfect reflection to be sure. At least, if you're looking at it at my house, I love you, babe. It's mostly my fault, uh, <laughs> but imperfect. But but there's supposed to be a, a there's supposed to be a um, a resemblance was the word I was reaching for. It's supposed to be a resemblance, reflecting the glory and beauty, precious nature of God's gospel. Amen. That's good. That'll help us, man. Do you understand that'll help you? It'll help you to refocus your ideas about marriage and what the purpose is from God's perspective. It will help you know what to do and how you respond to your spouse or how you look for a spouse. Come on. Amen. I know some of the folks not yet married are like, oh, man, another sermon on divorce and marriage. Listen, that's the point. That's what I'm trying to get to, man. This thing isn't just about divorce. Jesus took it and made it way more than that. And he punked the Pharisees by saying, Here, let me show show you how you miss the heart of the matter all the time. Let me show you, actually, Deuteronomy 24 is not about your silly debate over the word uncleanness. That's not the point, okay? And that's what I'm saying we tend to do. We tend to overcomplicate things. We muddy the waters, but children don't do that. Little children don't do that. Little children are simple, and that's what Jesus is saying here. How do we complicate it? Well, how did they complicate it when it came to Deuteronomy 24? What does uncleanness mean? Well, we think it means, uh, we, we've got this conservative angle on it. What we think it means is there's only, there's only one possible way, and it's this very specific, we're going to have this letter of the law answer to what that word means, and, and that's it, and, and we're going we're to hold everyone to that standard, and that's, that's it. That's the bottom line. Okay, That was Rabbi Shammai. And then you got Rabbi Hillel. So what is what is that? That's kind of that's kind of your legalistic wing. How do do we complicate situations? How do we complicate ourselves out of being able to trust in Christ and his gospel? Most often it's the dual thieves of legalism and or moralism and relativism. Because you had on the other end of this debate, I mean this this is this tends to be the way we split, and we end up based on personality or personal experience or whatever in one of these two factions on just about everything, including the gospel. These thieves steal power from the gospel. You have legalism, which is, let's, I'm going to follow the letter of the law and, and God's going to accept me because of that, because of my uprightness and my righteousness. Well, on, on, then you have the relativistic side of this thing. Uh, Rabbi Hillel's deal. Well, uncleanness means basically whatever you want it to mean. I mean, she could burn the beans and. Uh, write her a certificate of divorce, off she goes, right? That's, that's more of a, that was more of a relativistic view. Let's, let's not care at all, really, what the, the heart of the, the word actually was or what God was getting to in this thing. All I want to do is try to use the scriptures to form uh, a free-for-all so I can do whatever I feel like doing at the given time. I can, I can follow my heart, right? Like Disney always tells you to do. Amen. I'm not like railing on Disney. It's just the example that came to my mind. Whatever. Do with that what you want. some of you are big Disney fans. Um, anyways, so th- w- that's, that's how we muddy the waters. That's how we tend to always complicate situations. We either tend towards a, a legalistic ditch or a relativistic ditch. And both of those steal power from the gospel. Because one teaches you, trains you to believe that grace, God's grace is so cheap, you, with your effort, you can work and make enough to earn it. And on the other side, it teaches us that God's grace is so cheap, nobody needs to work to earn it. Nobody needs to do anything. To, to the point that even Christ didn't need to die to cover us. Because God is, God is just love and God just wants you to be happy. Well, friends, um, sometimes you believe things will make you happy that will actually hurt you bad. Because you are not God and you don't see from his perspective. And that's why, like little children, we need to trust him. Because even when it comes to this thing we talked about today, it it did get complicated, and we had to go to a bunch of verses, and there's lots to ask about it. There's more questions, and I'm telling you, I'm telling you it is complicated because you need pastoral care oftentimes, and biblically trained counselors are both to work through it. But but at the end of the day, the, the contrast here is, we just had a difficult, complicated conversation. Jesus is like, but when, when it comes to the kingdom, man, when it comes to salvation, we got, we got to bring it back to it being very simple. And honestly, the simplicity and the beauty of God's grace and gospel then, then can apply back into those complicated situations and make them, that's at least the light we use to find our way through the labyrinth, okay? But a lot of times people are trying to find their way through the labyrinth without that light and <clears throat> you're going to end up in the wrong corridor, I can promise you. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying we need to come to God with the simplicity of childlike faith or else we will fall headlong into one of these ditches trying to rationalize our relationship with him. <laughs> can't do it. You can't rationalize grace. It's scandalous and it doesn't make sense. The truth that we are sinners and that Christ came off of his throne in heaven allowed himself to be born of a virgin girl in Bethlehem to be raised by human parents that he created and then submitted himself to be tortured and murdered by his own creation in order to save them that rationally doesn't make a lot of sense <laughs> but you know this by way of analogy and this this is touchy and, and for for those that this may touch a nerve I'm sorry but it's It's a helpful analogy, and this is the reason I'm saying it. You know, the reason why little kids are often abused is is this. Because they are both helpless and trusting. They're helpless and trusting. And what Jesus is saying here is that that helpless and trusting posture is the posture we must come before God with. That vulnerability. But here's what we also see. In Christ, in Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his teachings, in his promises, in Christ we see the proof that we have no need of fearing this kind of vulnerability with our heavenly Father. Children end up being treated poorly because they are helpless and they are trusting. And that's because bigger humans around them are imperfect, broken people themselves. But we don't have that problem with our Heavenly Father. And we can come to Him like little kids, with that kind of innocent trust. And so that's what I'm saying, friends. If you know, Maybe this is the first teaching you've seen of anybody trying to walk you through a biblical view of the, the subject of marriage and divorce. Maybe you have lots of questions right now, and maybe you, have, you heard me say things that you didn't like, and... and, and the goal is never to, to just offend you for offense sake, but sometimes the truth of the word will offend you. And, and what I'm asking you to do is if whatever it is today, whatever big cosmic questions you have about life and, and death or marriage and divorce or wherever the intersection of your, your thoughts and your life comes in, into collision with the teaching of God's word, wherever those gaps are, friends, I'm, I'm asking you to, to simplify. Don't let that dictate whether or not you're going to come close to Jesus like these little kids did. You can come to him with this vulnerability. Look to Jesus. That's what I'm saying. You got big questions. That's great. God's not scared of your questions and neither are we as a church. We welcome that. But, but we need to start from a place of what, what are we going to do with Jesus? What are we going to believe about Jesus? What are we going to believe about the fact that a humble Galilean peasant rose to such prominence in this ancient time, was murdered, and then it's, it's testified by many who saw it happen that he rose from the grave and then the world has been changed ever since. What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with his teachings? What are we going to do with the fact that he didn't just feed the hungry and heal people and, and do amazing things that no one can explain? What are we going to do with the fact he didn't just do all that, but he said, I am God. I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No man's going to come to the Father except through me. What are we going to do with the Bible's claims that this Jesus is the Savior of the world and that he can be trusted? We've got to start there. And if we start there and we use that gospel love, the perfect example being the way Christ has loved us as our light, then we can go try to explore these other more complicated, difficult questions. And friends, sometimes the answer is going to end up being, we can't be sure. God can't explain every detail of everything to us always to a level that would, would satisfy our curiosity because some things are reserved for him. What did Paul say in Ephesians 5 about two becoming one flesh? God told us everything he could tell us about it, but then, but then we're still left with this mystery is great. <laughs> and that's what some of this is going to be like. But the question is, has God shown us enough in Christ to trust him, that we can be vulnerable, that we can come to him like, like little helpless children and know, He's not going to hurt us. He's going to love us. He's going to help us and be good to us. I believe he has. And friends, I hope you'll at least consider believing that today. And ask God to show you the truth of the matter. Because the grace of God defies our rational sensibilities. It is only through humble, childlike faith that we can receive it. That is where we find ourselves today. And uh, again, I just want to say as as the shepherd over Love City Church. Anytime we touch the conversation of, of marriage and divorce, I know there are, there are raw nerves right near the surface, and this can be difficult. And And I also want to say to you, there's, there's no way, in the same way Jesus really, it seems like he kind of only had time to say what he said about the thing in Mark 10, and, and we had to go to the whole council of God's word to, to look at the matter still we were not able to say everything that could be said or consider every possible variant. And that's why I'm saying oftentimes in these difficult matters, there's a need for pastoral care, biblical counseling, or both. And and, and that's what I want to say to you. If, if you find yourself confused or not sure what this means today, I, I want to invite you to, to reach out, uh, use email, use the website, um, and I'll do my best to answer whatever, whatever questions, any questions that come up. Uh, the goal of this, if Here's what you can be sure of. If as we end this sermon, if what you're sitting in right now is a heavy sense of condemnation, then Satan has tried to twist this good word of God, the hope that should come out of these verses and use it against you. That's not how this should end for you. Should there be conviction? Uh, very, very possibly, probably, yes. <laughs> uh, should there be reasons where uh, we will have hope uh, flicker in us for the, uh, the beauty of God's intent in marriage and, and uh, the, the hope of the gospel in the midst of all of it? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there should be hope. And uh, that, that's, what, that's the difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation is, is just a, a fist or a hammer that continues to beat you in the head and talk about how worthless you are and how there is no hope. The conviction of God is a gift of his spirit, and it always brings with it uh, a way to respond and a way to move forward in faith. And so, um, if, if what is sitting upon you is heavy condemnation and all that I've said thus far has, has not been enough to lift that from you, I want you to know um, we're here. I'm here uh, to reach out and to talk through, work through, continue to look at the counsel of God's word and, and lean into the help of his spirit uh, to end you up not in condemnation because there is not supposed to be any of that for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. I love y'all very much. Uh, I hope you'll pray with me now. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you. Uh, Thank you for Mark 10. Thank you uh, for these verses that at first glance and maybe even second and third glance seem like a bit of a minefield. Uh, But Lord, I thank you. With the help of your spirit, you're able to take us below the surface today to show us the true heart of what you're getting at, to show us um, our own tendency to miss the point. God, please don't let us sit here today thinking, man, look at those rabbis missing the point. Look at those Pharisees missing the point. How can they be so silly? Lord, we are not free from this foolish tendency. We, we confess that sin right now. We are all constantly, consistently pulled to those ditches of, of legalism or relativism. Uh, but Lord, your gospel is a narrow, it's a narrow road. Um, and we can only walk it through the help and power of your Spirit and the wisdom of your Word. And we're going to sh- trip and stumble. We know that. We're not going to do it perfectly. Uh, but God, we don't want to use that as justification for laziness on our part. We don't want to be just hearers of the Word. We want to be doers. And so we ask for your help in these things. Lord, I pray for every marriage of every person that stumbles upon this teaching, uh, however it comes to them. I pray, God, that uh, their hearts would be softened, that they would be enamored and uh, that their curiosity would be piqued as Lord Jesus, you answer the question of divorce by taking it all the way back to God's purposes. As we as we consider marriage in a much grander scope, as we think about God's creative purpose in the institution and what his mind about it is, uh, and we take and try to apply that. And then Lord, we, we let ourselves sit and, and marinate and think on the reality that That there's this analogous connection between the gospel and between Christian marriage. And what that means, not just at the level of doctrine or idea, but what it means for how we live, how we conduct ourselves. Lord, help us. Help us to be that reflection to the world of selfless, sacrificial, beautiful love. In all ways, not just in our marriages, God. We love you so much. Thank you for these verses. It's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.com dot org